Open up your Bible. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8, as it says on the, up on the screen, but I want us to begin by reading just one book over in Ezra, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Ezra and Nehemiah come together in this chapter, and I want you to read this about Ezra's commitments in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, and then we're going to read in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. So we're going to read two verse 10s this morning. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, and this is the word of the Lord. In fact, go back just a little before verse 10. It says, for the good hand of his God was on him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now I want you to look over in Nehemiah chapter 8. And read with me what it says in verse 10. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm so thankful that we get to look at this incredible book and the book of Nehemiah and that now we have come to Nehemiah chapter 8, which, just to be honest, is not just my favorite chapter in the book of Nehemiah. It may very well be one of my favorite chapters, if not my favorite chapter in all of the Old Testament. And as we go through this book, I hope that you'll see so many themes, even as we look at how they're described in Nehemiah 8, how it's reflected in our church today. So I'm looking forward to walking through this chapter with you. But where I want us to stop, start is for us to understand how Nehemiah and Ezra's lives intersect, because we're going to see that as we open up chapter 8 in the first verse. Because you're introduced to Ezra, a uh, priest and a scribe who's mentioned back in the book of Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries of each other. Though Ezra comes first, he sets the way and then Nehemiah follows, but they're only separated by about 15 years or so. Ezra was the one who came and the first part of the book of Ezra describes how he was instrumental in helping the people, uh, or it describes what happened in rebuilding the temple of God. And then the last half of Ezra talks about the rebuilding of the people who are now worshiping in the rebuilt temple. And so when you come to Nehemiah, the first seven chapters are what we've been looking at, the building of the walls around Jerusalem. And now that the walls have been completed, according to Nehemiah chapter 6, now the attention turns to rebuilding the people. So you see that similarity in Ezra and Nehemiah. You see how Ezra was so committed to studying the Word of God, doing that which he studied, and showing others to do the same as we just read about in Ezra chapter 7, as the good hand of God is on him. And for 15 years before Nehemiah hits the scene, he's been doing that, teaching the Word of God, demonstrating for the people how to live according to what that is that they have learned. And then you come to Nehemiah, and you see these two People come together, these two wonderful leaders, Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor, to lead their people together. 
And what you read about in Nehemiah chapter 8 is really a beautiful picture of revival. But as much as anything else, what we're going to walk away from this morning is a deeper understanding of the centrality of God's Word in our lives. And can I just tell you that of all the things that I could ever encourage you to do or to embrace as a believer in the Lord Jesus, if there's anything that I want you to walk away with, it's the importance of the Word of God in your life. But what I love about Nehemiah chapter 8 is it not only speaks of the importance of God's Word, but it shows an intersection of the importance of the Word of God with the joy that the Word of God brings. And it's really important for us to bring those two things together. Anytime you talk about reading the Word of God, I think the, the, the response to just about everybody when you begin that conversation is a bowed head because you know there's so much more that could be done in your personal commitment to reading the Word of God in your own life. It's really important to know that. I, I think about the spiritual discipline of reading God's Word as being one of the most fundamentally essential parts of being a Christian. And yet, if we're really honest, so many of us struggle in this area for a variety of reasons. When I think about this spiritual discipline of reading your Bible, I'm reminded of what Tom Landry said, that 30-year coach of the Dallas Cowboys, when he said that the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do to achieve what they've always wanted to be. And a lot of times you feel that way when it comes to reading God's Word. But then you have to ask the question, why don't we want to read it? Jeremiah chapter 15 says that God's word was found and I ate it and it became the joy of my life and the delight of my heart. So why is it that it feels so difficult sometimes to prioritize the reading of God's word? And we can come up with a whole lot of different reasons as to why. We live in a culture right now that learning has become more passive than it has become something that you do in a more assertive way. I say that because we learn best how? By traveling down the road and listening to as many podcasts as we can put in our, 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 our radio. Or we find different ways to learn so that we're in and around learning. But the thought of actually sitting down with a text in front of us, especially one that numbers hundreds of years old, and just learning it and struggling through understanding it is something that so many people find difficult. And so it's largely because we have gotten so used to things coming easier than that. We'd rather have something that it can be attained without the struggle. And so some of that keeps people from God's Word, I'm afraid. You know what else I think does, though? If we're really honest, we keep that Word closed because of spiritual warfare in our life. Because we know the moment we open it, it's going to require us to change something about us. In fact, I was reading a book, Living by the Book, um, is a wonderful book on the importance of studying God's Word. And the opening line of that book is this. It says that the book, speaking of the Bible, it does keep you from sin, but sin is what keeps you from the book. So there's all kinds of reasons why we don't read the Word of God as we ought. Sometimes we don't want to go through the struggle. Sometimes it might be because of sin. But at the end of the day, I'm grateful for Nehemiah chapter 8 because here's why. It prioritizes the importance of God's Word and it shows all through Nehemiah 8 that it is God's Word that brings joy. 
So this isn't going to be a sermon that you're going to feel beat down by. Hopefully you'll be encouraged from what we read about in Nehemiah chapter 8. Because as you see that this is the true way that a Christian can experience joy in their life, I hope that you will leave this place wanting to go straight home and open up your Bible and begin a fresh commitment to studying God's Word in your own life because you're tired of living your life removed of joy. You want your life to be marked by the joy that comes through studying and reading God's Word. So that's what we're going to look at today as we unpack Nehemiah chapter 8. And here's the main premise of this chapter that I want you to think about this morning. When God's Word is read and explained and understood, those who receive it are strengthened and filled with joy every time. I want you to think about that this morning as we work through this. Every single time, no matter where we might be, because it might be that we're in the book of Genesis, it might be that we're devouring one of the Gospels, it might be that we're opening up to one of the minor or major prophets, we might be in Revelation. But wherever you're turning, whenever God's Word is read and explained, and when it's understood, when you receive it, you get strength from it, and you get joy from it. So that's what I want us to talk about today as we walk through Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to see it first in these opening verses as I encourage you to receive these verses and engage in a dynamic relationship with the Word. Notice what we read about in chapter 8 verse 1. There's all kinds of wonderful nuggets all the way through. It says that all the people gathered as one man in the square. I love that expression. The people of God are assembled together at a particular place, and the text says they're gathered together as one man. Doesn't this just speak of beautiful unity? Isn't this what you long for every time you meet together with brothers and sisters in the Lord? You are gathered together as one man. But then if you've been in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 7, like we have just this morning in our daily Bible reading plan, you find that expression learned of the people of God as Saul is now commissioned and anointed to be the king over all of Israel. And when they all gathered together to battle, it said they all came together as one man. So this isn't just a picture of nice, friendly unity. This is a picture of battlefield. This is a picture of warfare. That when God's people are assembled as an army, we come together as one. And there's a purpose behind it. It even helps us understand more deeply what Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians, that we are one body but many parts. And here's why. If we're all assembled as one man, and you are a part of this fellowship, but you, for whatever the reason, are not engaged as you ought to be, Please understand, it's not just you that misses out on being with God's people. We miss out on you being here, because without you, we're not complete. When God's people are together, we're together as one man. And they've assembled together, and they've invited this wonderful scribe and priest by the name of Ezra. So Ezra makes his appearance in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm so thankful that he does. We've read, I've explained to you about Ezra already. But as you think about Ezra in this text, I want you to look at what we read. Ezra's received an invitation, but he is told not to just come by himself. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I get that invitation a lot. People say, Pastor, we would love for you to come, but we would much rather Allie come, so you have to come too. And I know what that feels like to be one who has to come, but 
They always tell me somebody else must come with me. But can I tell you that that should be an invitation that you extend to me as your pastor every single Sunday. I love seeing you. Now, I don't know how you feel about seeing me, but I'll just go ahead and tell you what I can control is I love seeing you guys. Patrick and Ida, seeing you just brings me joy every time. Getting to meet you, Garrett, was wonderful this morning. When I think about those of you who are here, I want you to know, Lily Kate, I love seeing you every week, and I had so much fun talking to you this week. I love seeing you, and you, I hope that you like seeing me too, but can I tell you, if I came without bringing what I should bring on Sunday morning, I hope you would say, Pastor, go home and get it and bring it back. We didn't just come to see you. We came to see you because we want you to bring to us God's Word today. And if you didn't come with the Word of God, go home and get it. Can I just say, this is just what church ought to be about. When we assemble together, it's not just to hear five successful steps toward a happy life. It's because we have come craving the Word of God. And if we don't get it, why have we gathered? This is why it's important for us to see that central to the worship of God's people is the Word of God to be given to the people of God, explained and understood so that we can live it out this week. So the people give Ezra the invitation. Because God's people want the Word of God. If we're going to have a dynamic relationship with God's Word, it begins with what we want, our craving. We desire God's Word. And so that's where this begins. But as you continue, there's so many other details that you do not want to miss. Ezra the priest, it says in verse 2, brought the law before the assembly and look at who's there. Men and women and all who could understand. Do you want to know why it's important that Lily Kate Elrod is in our service? Do you want to know why it's important that my daughter Hannah is in our service? Because when the people of God are there to receive the word, it's not just for mom and dad, though it's important. It's for everyone who can understand. I'm grateful for Cindy and what she does downstairs. But when our kids are of an age that they can comprehend and understand the importance of gathering together to receive God's word, it's important that we do that in the same place with each other. And this is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. When the people need God's word, the children, moms and dads, they're all there together, every generation, to receive what God has for them. That's why we do that here. And as you continue to read, it says that the priest brought the law before the assembly. Men and women, they're all gathered together. And he does so on the first day of the seventh month. Now, to understand the context of Nehemiah chapter 8, the seventh month is integral to you understanding what's happening here. Because back in chapter 6, they finished building the wall in 52 days. And you'll want to know why it was important to meet their deadline. The seventh month was coming. This is an incredibly important month in the life of the, of the people of Israel. Because the seventh month was when the first day of the month they celebrate the trumpet of the feast. Uh, the trumpet, the Feast of the Trumpets. And on the Feast of the Trumpets, they bring in the new year with a solemn assembly, declaring that this is a new year for them to serve the Lord and be committed. And by the tenth day of the seventh month, they have the day of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement that was just celebrated this past Thursday by the Jewish people. And the reason why that's an important day, it's the day that we recognize that 
it is only through the sacrifice of, of blood and goats that people can be saved. Forgiveness of sin has to come about through that blood sacrifice. It reminded them of Passover and what happened at that very first Passover. And then five days after the um, Yom Kippur, that is when you have the day of the Feast of Booths. And we're going to see the importance of the Feast of Booths even in chapter 8 this morning as they celebrated their deliverance into Canaan, reminding themselves of how God was there with them in the wilderness as they traveled in tabernacles or in tents until they got to go to their final dwelling place in the promised land. But all of this happens on the seventh day as it ushers in this time of intense worship. And it says in verse 3 that he read from the law of God, which is the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He read from it facing the square, and he started early in the morning until midday. That is why I'm going to start preaching now at 8, and you will stay here until noon. You don't have to worry about that. We're not going to mimic that. But I do want you to see, though, as we read this text, that the length doesn't deter anyone from the focus that they give. Because the Bible says that as the word of God is read to them by Ezra, the people are attentive. Now, let's talk about the importance of attentiveness in the worship service. Do you come anticipating God to show up? Do you know that this is more than just what you do to check off a list that you did a good thing and come to church this morning? This won't matter to you one lick until you show up ready and anticipating God to do something and to show you something and to meet with us in a way that we've never done. So if we're coming into this place, and I'm not trying to get on all of our football watchers, I'm liking it too, but if you let that keep you up at night to where you're dozing off the next day, you've not come in here with the right readiness. That you have come expecting and ready for the Lord to show up and that this matters to you. And I know that there are some dry sermons occasionally preached. I know I'm guilty of it at times. That's why I tell people all the time when they tell me, Pastor, I'm struggling with sleeping problems at night. I'm like, well, just listen to last week's sermon. Just pop it in there. You'll do fine. But can I tell you, though, we don't need to settle for coming to church and just running through the motions. We need to come here attentive and ready for what God has for us each week. And when we do that, we are engaged in a very dynamic relationship with the Word of God as it is given to us and it is preached to us. And then so it says in verse 4, Ezra is breaking open the Word of God and he stands on a wooden platform. Why do you think I'm standing in a place that's a bit elevated over all of you? It's not because I think I'm special. It's because this is. And this sacred desk I stand behind is of personal importance to me. My dad preached from this as I'm a second-generation pastor. For 20-something years at First Baptist Douglasville, he occupied this particular sacred desk. And every week I get to now stand before you or whomever is preaching, declaring the Word of God. And when someone stands behind this place, you come ready and anxious to receive the word that God has for you. And all of these come out as we read of the way that Ezra addresses the people as they have assembled before him. There are with him some Levites, seven on one side and six on the other. We don't know what their jobs are. We see their names in, verses, in verse 4, but we know that their job has got something to do with facilitating the assembling of the people together. And then you see that Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people 
And when he did, the people stood. Why do we stand when God's word is read? We don't have to. But we do in honor of the importance of God's word. And then Ezra blessed the Lord and the people answered, Amen. Amen. As they lifted their their hands and they bowed their heads in worship, in humility and submission with their faces to the ground. There are other Levites there for a purpose. You see all their names in verse 7. And why do you think they're mentioned? Because God's word doesn't need to just be spoken and explained. It needs to be understood. And that was the task of this group. And when you read that, that is why our community groups are so important. Built around whatever was preached from the pulpit on that Sunday morning so that the people of God could not just understand it, but can not just have it explained, but can understand it, and then answer the question, how in the world am I going to live my life this week as a result of what I heard proclaimed this morning? And this is what we see right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. This dynamic relationship with the Word of God each week as it is read, explained, and understood, and lived out, and the people every week are engaged in this sort of practice is the way that we ought to be as we learn from this example in Ezra chapter 8. So are you engaged in the relationship with the Word this way? Do you see how much opportunity you have in our church to do this? But then as we continue to read verses 9 through 12, I also want you to know that as we live our lives in this relationship, that is when we put ourselves in the place for us to find joy as a believer. It says in verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, what a wonderful team. And the Levites who taught the people, they said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. Well, why do you think he tells them to stop mourning and weeping? It's because that's what God's word does to you as you receive it. You see what God is calling you to and your need for change and the areas in your life that are not what God wants them to be and the distance between what God wants and where we are. And it brings us to a place of mourning and weeping. Now, we're going to see in chapter 9, there is a place for confession, and that weeping needs to follow through with repentance. In chapter 8, he's not saying repentance isn't important, but he's calling them to something else. Notice what he says. He says to them, go your way. In verse 10. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And don't be grieved. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a place for you to confess and to deal with your sin that's been exposed that you've got to come to grips with. But as you are engaged in this dynamic relationship with the Word of God, now you have to deal with the fact that this is, though, the place that you find joy. There's joy because the Lord has spoken to you. And so I love what we see here. It should bring us joy every time we get to actually hear from God because as you do so, it just shows you yet another time that the Lord is there, that he's provided. He did this for Ezra as he used a, Uh, even the pagan king Cyrus over the Persians to provide what was necessary for the temple to be rebuilt. 
He's already done so for Nehemiah as he used Artaxerxes to approve the rebuilding of the wall so the people could be protected and not be the derision of all their enemies any longer. They have seen the Lord's provision time and time again, so now is the time to rejoice. Look at the goodness of God and that God has declared us to be the delight of his heart. What a text. Do you see how valuable you are to him? John 3.16, we quote it all the time. Do you ever think about the fact that when it says that God so loved the world, what that says to you and I is that God so delights in us that he gave us his one and only son, the greatest of gifts, so that we wouldn't have to perish but would spend, could spend eternal life in him as we put our hope and our trust in him. You are delight to him. There is reason to rejoice. So when you come under the word of God and you receive God's word, you put yourself in the place to find true joy, such a thing that is so elusive in our culture and our world today, a joy that can't be touched by any of the efforts of the world to remove it from us. And you can live and walk in that joy. So why is it that church attendance isn't a priority? This is where you find joy, receiving the word of God. Why is it hard to do this every day as you get up in the morning and you open up your Bible? Why, why do you think it's worth just getting up an extra 30 minutes early so that you can spend time communing with Jesus every morning? It's because this is where you're going to find joy. I just long for you to live in this joy. So you see here this beautiful text about how all these leaders of God's people says, yes, you do need to deal with the conviction over your sin that's brought mourning, but not today. Today's the day that you need to live in the joy that God has given you. And I just love what we read here. It says in verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So put yourself in the place to find joy. Don't you long for this? Isn't it wonderful that we can have this in Christ? But also, give glory where glory's due. Listen to how this text ends. I told you the seventh month is crucial to understanding of Nehemiah chapter 8. On the second day, so they had revival on the first day. All morning, all they did was receive the word of God as Ezra gave it. All afternoon, all they did was meet together with these Levites to have God's word explained to them so they could make sense of everything they had learned. And then they come back to church a second day. And on this day, we read the heads of the fathers of the houses of the people and the priests and the Levites, they're all meeting together. What a description. That all the heads of the houses, the fathers of the houses, have all wanted time with Ezra. Why is that? Because they feel the weight of responsibility for their families walking closely with Jesus, with, with the Lord. They want their families to be close to God. So they are the ones taking the leadership to meet with the priest and to talk to him about what it is that they need to do and how they are to live. And can I tell you, this is why our church values family ministry so deeply because the primary disciple maker in the home is always going to be the moms and dads of those families. 
And as we see that, particularly the role of fathers, spiritual leaders in the house, leading their families so that they are ready to receive all that God has for them so they can grow in Christ. It says they're the ones that meet with Levites, and they've got, look at what it says in verse 14. They found something. The dads are studying the Word of God. I love this text. The dads have found something that needs to be addressed. Now, I don't know why it is, but in most homes, it seems as if it's more natural for the women to be the leaders of the spiritual leaders of the home. And I don't know why it's that way. I, I, I agree. My for, one of my former mentors used to preach that often. Herschel York would just explain that, that in his ministry, he's just experientially found it's, for whatever reason, easier for women to be spiritually strong than men. I think it's unfortunate that that's the case. And when you read this text, you see that if we're going to lead our families, men, that cannot be true. Because it's the dads, it's the fathers who find what is written in the law as they look deeply within it. It says that the Lord had commanded Moses, this is what they found, that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns of Jerusalem and go out in the hills and do what they need to do to live this out. So it was proclaimed. You read about this in places like uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 23. You read about it in Deuteronomy 31 that God commissioned his people to never forget the days that they were in the wilderness by celebrating the Feast of the Booths, that they would build these tents. And during that week, they would worship the Lord by building the tents as a reminder of God's provision for them while they were in the wilderness. That God led his people into Canaan. And do you see why this is so significant for a group of people who have now returned from exile and have now gone back into Jerusalem and from the rubble of the city that was torn down by Nebuchadnezzar, they've rebuilt the walls and reestablished worship in the temple. And it's as if they have returned and have gone into the promised land, much like what had happened from their forefathers' days when Moses led them out of the wilderness and Joshua led them in to conquer Canaan. And the people are rejoicing because now they can reestablish the, they can show priority to the feast of the booths. So they go out and they do what they know God's word tells them to do. They find what they need to do to build these tents. Branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make the booths. So the people went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God. What a scene that had to be. I saw a really funny picture on the news this past week of these taxi cars in, in, in China with these gardens built on top of their roofs. And there's this whole lot of, 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 of taxi cabs that have these gardens, makeshift gardens on the top because they're trying to make some good about these cars that have been unusable during the days of COVID where everybody's been stuck in their homes. Now, that was a weird scene. I look at this, and it seems so countercultural, too, that everywhere they went, they had a tent. On tops of the roof, they had a tent. Out in the streets, they had a tent. But it was a celebration and reminder of how God had walked them through when they lived in those tabernacles, waiting the day they would make their way back to the promised land. And so they reestablished that part of the festival of the booths, and they did what they needed to do in the square and in the gate. And all the assembly of those who returned, it says in verse 17, from the captivity, they made booths and they lived in them for the days of 
Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the days of the people of Israel. And there was great rejoicing. Why? Because they're being obedient. God convicted them of something they needed to do. They followed God's word in obedience. And whenever you do that, it brings joy into your life. And they gave glory not to themselves, but to the Lord who had sustained them and would continue to do so. I love this text. I love the role that the spiritual leaders have as they're leading their families here. I love the imagery that reminds us that until we go to heaven, we, according to the book of Hebrews, are sojourners, longing for our eternal home in heaven, that sweet Beulah land that we're looking forward to one day. We get to be with Jesus in our Canaan forever and ever. That we are like sojourners now, but as we are on that journey through life, we are anchored to the Lord. And listen, I love the fact that we need to remember we haven't arrived we're not home yet. We need Jesus as much today as we've ever needed him. And we praise him because we know that he's there, sustaining us every step of the way. And even in the fragility of our lives, even as we know now, especially in this season, how fragile and how quick our health can be taken we see God's sustaining hand at work in our lives. And we know that we have to depend upon him to be our strength. What a passage. No wonder the people rejoice. Because they're giving glory where glory is due. I'm amazed at this text. And as you read through Nehemiah chapter 8, I want you to read through it through the lens of what we learn about Jesus in the Gospel of John. You know what the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word. We're talking about the Word in Nehemiah 8, the centrality of it in our lives. How it was the Word that Ezra declared. It was the Word that was explained by the Levites. It was the Word that brought joy as they realized the joy of the Lord was their strength. It was the Word that showed them how to live having neglected the festival of the booths for so long and now reclaiming that. It's all about the Word. So in John chapter 1, we learned that, the, that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it says in chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh. So when you read about God's Word being spoken at the beginning of Nehemiah 8, we rejoice because Jesus has spoken to us. And when we think about the word as it was there, giving joy to the people, their strength, that reminds us that Jesus is always present. He always gives us joy. This isn't a time for weeping. This is a time to rejoice. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, when those Pharisees were coming after him and saying, why don't your disciples fast like we all fast? You remember what Jesus said to them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus said, there will be a day to mourn, but it's not today because I'm here today. And we can rejoice because Jesus is with us today. But then as we look at the end of the text, how God is 
with his people even through the days of the wilderness as they were in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Jesus is with us, sustaining us. It says in Colossians, the whole universe is held in the grasp of his hands. It's just incredible to think about the power of the word of God. And yet, we leave it on its shelf. We don't engage with it. I just long for you to live each and every day with the power and the strength that only comes from God's Word. I was just thinking as I was getting ready for this message, this is a time that's interesting time in my life, in my wife's life. We have a 16-year-old who has a learner's permit. And I'm always grateful that Jeff Hodges has gone just before me and that he's got four girls and I have four girls and that his youngest, Kate, she just launched out to the University of Georgia and she had to learn how to navigate 285 and make her way down 316 and make it back and forth to school. And boy, I'm not looking forward to the day that I have to do much of the same. But I'm trying my best to make sure Amelia's ready, and so we're in the time that we're trying to teach her how to drive. And you know, the thing about learning how to drive, it's important that you get a lot of hours in. You want to know why? There's all kinds of challenges that you don't expect to face. All kinds of variables, weather, crazy people driving around you. You have to learn that the speed limit on places like 285 is just kind of a suggestion, right? <laughs> and if you do think of it as being a real thing, then you're going to get ran over and mowed over at times. And so you got to sort of get the time in to train your 15-year-old before you really send them out and say, all right, you're ready. Now that you've got your license, here you go. Get out on 285, make your way around it, you'll be all right. If you do it before they're ready, it's just wrong. And can I tell you that the reason why God has given us his word is because there are so many variables in our life that we're going to face. And we've got to react to the challenges the right way and the best way every single time. And you have no hope if you're doing it without a regular steady diet of the word of God in your life. And it's just as wrong as getting on 285 and not being ready for the challenge. How in the world can we ever make that mistake? The Word of God matters so much. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And as we get ready to have this time of invitation, I just invite you to consider the promise the centrality of the Word of God and to remember that this is what brings us joy. God's word was found and I ate it. And it became my joy and the delight of my heart, said Jeremiah. That's what I long for you to experience. Is the joy of the Lord your strength? Are you walking in the power that comes through the steady diet of the word of God each day? That's got to be the central theme of our service. Every time we meet, it should be that which we interact with every single day. We need the word of God. If you're here today and you've never met the Word of God personified in Jesus Christ, I just invite you to consider what it means to know Him. That this morning, you might realize that being right with God is something you cannot achieve. 
Your only hope is to trust in Jesus to do for you that which you cannot do for yourself. You might have tried a million different ways to earn your way to heaven, but you will fall flat every time. Your only hope is to trust in the one who lived the life that you could not live to die the death that you deserve so that he could be raised to live, show us that he's conquered death and life forever. And when you put your hope and your trust in him, the Bible says all who confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. You need to call upon his name to be saved this morning. For all the rest of us, how can we even think we can go without the word of God? Use this time just to just to commit your life to say, Oh God, I long for that joy to mark my days. I just want to live in the wisdom and the strength that you give. Father, thank you so much for your word. Pray that you'll use it to penetrate our heart and we'll be forever changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.